Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the mind and body in balance, what modern medicine and we must learn from ancient science. My first guest today is Tiffany Cruikshank. Tiffany Cruikshank is the founder of Yoga Medicine. She's also a Chinese medicine practitioner and a sports medicine expert, and she is in the house to talk about how we can apply yoga as medicine for our health, well-being, and healing. Hi, Tiffany. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. Many people know that as a midlife project, I went back to school and have gotten my yoga teaching certificate, not because I want to become a full-time yoga teacher, but I wanted a way to deepen my practice. I wanted to have a project, an empty nest project when my youngest went off to college. And I've learned a lot through the training. And what I really have become interested in, which is your area of expertise, is this healing space, the medicinal value of yoga as a practice to our healing. I love that. I think a lot of people go back and take trainings to kind of find out more about their own inner tools and resources. And I think it can be a really great experience too. Explain why we should show up on our mat in service to healing and balancing our bodies, besides the obvious. What is it about the practice of yoga? Well, for me, I think the biggest thing about the practice of yoga is that it really does encompass so many different layers of who we are. I think in medicine, we're often looking at, you know, just this one layer of the person who's in front of us. And I think the beauty of yoga is that it can really address so many different facets of who we are as a human being. We're, we're multidimensional where, you know, there, there's very different parts of us, even in different parts of our lives and being able to acknowledge both the very physical parts of ourselves, the, the mental parts, the energetic parts, how we interact, how we move, how we breathe. What keeps me really intrigued, I think, over the decades, too, is being able to look at the body in all these different ways and be able to layer different kind of images of how to work with the body on top of each other. And when we talk about yoga as a practice, it is probably one of the only physical practices that we can do regardless of our age, and we get better at it as we get older. <laughs> I love that. And and we don't need any tools for it, which is wonderful. I mean, you know, yoga mat's always nice, but sometimes I'm traveling and I don't even have a yoga mat in a hotel room. You know, you can kind of get away with it and use pillows and, you know, whatever you've got. And I think that's a really powerful thing too, is regardless of who you are, you know, you can adapt the practice to also meet your needs for that day, for that week, for that year, for that phase of your life, which I think is such a powerful part of it too. 
And what about the role of yoga as a medical art philosophy? I love this term, medical art philosophy. Yeah, I think one of the things that is so powerful about this is as a way to, I always think of it as learning the owner's manual to our bodies. And I think one of the things that we lack a lot of times in in our medical system is being able to look at like, how do I decode the individuality of my personal health and wellness and being able to work with patients in a way that, you know, gives them resources to use on their own, I think is such an important thing. And then maybe layering in a different philosophy of, you know, how I look at the body and, and looking at, you know, those layers that we talked about, maybe the, the koshas or the chakras or just even acknowledging that there is an energetic layer of the body, which is so hard in our medical world because we don't know how to measure it. We don't know how to tune into it and really see it. But clearly after so many years of doing this, we know that there's something there. There's something that works. <laughs> and to describe the koshas and the chakras, I mean, the subtle body energy, if one were to do an autopsy on a human being, you would not see these areas and yet they're there. Exactly. Yeah. And in Chinese medicine, you know, the idea of qi as well, of trying to be able to measure this. And, you know, one of my favorite definitions of qi is this idea of energy on the verge of materializing. So it's like our body has this energy or, you know, ATP, if we want to think of it from a Western sense, but we don't really express it until it actually comes to life. So we use energy to move. But in Chinese medicine, there's this idea of energy before it actually manifests as movement. So, you know, we feel this as our energy level and our capacity to take on and to fulfill and to be animated and to interact. And I think we can all acknowledge that there is a sense of having this capacity at our fingertips and sometimes maybe having more reserves than others. But because we can't quantify it and measure it, it is really difficult in a Western sense to wrap our head around this idea of chi or energy or koshas or chakras. So, And in acupuncture, when you are giving someone an acupuncture treatment, you are in a sense through the places where you're putting in those very thin needles and stimulating them, you are activating energy within the body Describe a little bit about how that aligns with what goes on in a yoga practice. Yeah, in Chinese medicine, in a very simplistic sense, the idea of acupuncture, too, is that the body is really built and created to self-regulate. We see this in Western medicine as this idea of homeostasis and the body's capacity to have all these checks and regulations to bring us back into balance so that our body can do what it does well to process and regulate and heal and repair. And in Chinese medicine, there's this idea that this energy system, when it has unobstructed flow through the body, is able to heal and self-regulate. And when there's obstructions in that, it becomes more difficult for the body to be resilient and bounce back. And and it's similar in yoga. We have a, a similar understanding just with less specific acupuncture points and meridians in the body, but there's still an understanding of this idea that as the energy flows freely through the body, that my body has this inherent capacity to heal, to self-regulate. And so, you know, we use pranayama or breathing exercises, meditation, asanas or physical postures to help regulate all of these layers. I mean, that's the thing about yoga that's hard to pinpoint. It makes it hard to study too, is that it's influencing the physical, the mental, the energetic, my perspective, my emotional state. So looking at addressing all of those different layers as a reflection of the energetic body uh, as well. But science is catching up. More and more research is being done 
to prove the physical and emotional benefits of yoga. Can you give some examples of studies? It is. And, you know, to be honest with yoga, it's it's really difficult to get a really good study going. There are a lot of smaller scale studies happening. The problem with it on yoga is that there are so many different moving parts. There's so many different styles and ways to go about it. So a lot of times you'll see some of the stylized practices like Shivananda, which oftentimes if you dig deep into the research are really looking mostly at, at pranayama or breathing practices or meditation. And, and so, you know, I have to say that unfortunately a lot of the research being done on yoga is not of the quality that most of our medical industry would, would be happy with or would acknowledge, but it takes a lot of those small scale studies to make a big one. However, what we see is in, in the meditation realm, which is, you know, considered a part of yoga, a, a branch of yoga, an incredible amount of really significant research coming up in and looking at so many different things from uh, mental health and GABA and dopamine and serotonin and anxiety and depression and a lot of really positive studies um, coming out around meditation because it's a lot easier, you know, to apply to a large group of people, you know, and one of the things we pride ourselves on at Yoga Medicine is being able to individualize the practice to the person. And so in a research study, you, you know, you really can't do do that as easily. It's usually a protocol. And so with physical postures, it becomes a little more, a little more challenging to have a protocol that's going to work for everybody. But with meditation, we can do that a lot more easily. And the, the work I'm thinking of, for example, is um, Dr. Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin. He's done a ton of research on meditation and mm-hmm. mental health. And I'm hoping that some of these researchers will take on, you know, the straight physical practice, the asana part of yoga, and be able to measure and (laughs) quantify the benefits, although we know them. And almost every doctor today, when talking about lifestyle with their patients, will say, you know, you really should have some form of movement. You can even do chair yoga if you can't, if you don't have good balance. You know, yoga is on the prescription pad of many doctors today. And I think the great thing about yoga is like for those of us who have a million things in our lives, we can look at it as like the multitaskers, you know, a wonderful place to sit because we can get movement, we can get the mindfulness, we can get, you know, the the work on mental health and all of these things. And, and yeah, there's a lot of really great research coming out around meditation and its effects on so many things. I mean, even like I love there's a great research study on lower back pain. And if you've ever sat in meditation, you know that one of the first things that comes up is you feel your lower back, but they had a very large study not too long ago looking at uh, meditation being really successful, meditation alone for lower back pain. And and yeah, I hope at some point we'll figure out a way to decode how to research yoga a little bit better. We actually have a nonprofit that is trying to start up some studies around that as well. But it's challenging because there are so many moving parts in a physical practice that really need to be modified to the individual. So talk about the nonprofit. Is that the SIVA Foundation? It's our other nonprofits. We have the Yoga Medicine Research Institute, which is led by one of our teachers who's been with us for a really long time, who's a PhD, who teaches at Purdue. She was at Brown, just moved over to Purdue and does research as her as her main job. She's a professor and does research in um, epigenetics and biological genetics. And um, she's been running that for us. And our first project is just about to get underway. So we're looking just at, at posterior hip pain to start with, but hope to get into all the really interesting things like epigenetics. <laughs> and Which would be incredible to be able to prove the why. 
the it's why, the why it works. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we see all these great studies on things like telomeres and, and, and things with meditation. It's just, again, it's really challenging to, to look at the asanas, which really are so different from person to person. So. And when we look at the physical and um, uh, breath practices of yoga, I mean, we're really looking at an ancient technology that the ancient teachers knew. They couldn't Mm. really describe the why, but it's not (laughs) much different than what science is telling us today. Even with the meditations, you know, that are activating both sides of the brain and you're moving the thought back and forth to help manage psychological disturbance or trauma. Yeah. And it's really interesting to watch the research start to, you know, come up come about and we start to understand a little bit of the why and how behind it, something that we've been doing for so many years that is, is interesting. And I don't know that we'll ever understand the, all of it. You know, I think there's a really great, beautiful place in the mystery behind of something that works that we don't necessarily completely understand. I mean, even the best research study only tells us a very small piece of information and even the best pharmaceutical only helps a certain number of people, a certain percentage of people. So, you know, having something like yoga that has very few side effects is, is such a great tool, I think, when used with our, our normal medical practices. And I think acknowledging that it's not there to take over our medical practices, but to be such an important adjunct to all of the other things that we use. And, and now to be able to fuse with, you know, our understanding of yoga that we've had for hundreds of years now with our understanding of anatomy and physiology and, and be able to let both of those inform each other. And, and also the evolution of people. I mean, we have changed so much from where yoga came about in India, you know, to a very different population, which actually didn't even allow women to practice at all years and not too long in the past to now a population that's mostly women in a Western society. And I think we also need to be conscious of, you know, adapting the practice to suit the person, you know, that we're working with as well. To learn more about yoga medicine and the complementary aspects that it provides as an adjunct to any other healing protocol that you might be doing, please visit yogamedicine.com. You can find Yoga Medicine and the work of Tiffany Crookshank on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest by just looking up Yoga Medicine. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Tiffany Crookshank and learn more about upcoming projects that are going on at Yoga Medicine, as well as the SIVA Foundation, which I mentioned just a moment ago. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Before we take the break, I want to schmooze with you about well-being. One of my passions is staying in shape to maintain good health and fitness as I age. Getting and staying in shape isn't just about losing weight. It's about learning healthier habits and feeling better about yourself, whether it's more stamina to keep up with the demands of a full and productive life, finally getting back into those tight jeans, you know what I'm saying, or practicing better and more balanced self-care. And as the years have passed, a little padding has appeared on my perimeter, along with hormonal changes that indicate time is marching on. Call it menopause or menopause if you're a guy. Yes, menopause is a thing. But I found a solution to shedding those pesky unwanted pounds with Noom, one of our newest show partners. Noom has been a great asset in helping me to make better self-care choices that have helped me drop weight, improve my self-esteem, and reduce stress. Noom is not a diet. Noom is a psychology-based platform and a habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses and coaching. 
Noom combines the power of technology with the empathy of real people to deliver successful behavioral change and sustainable weight loss results with a personal time investment of about 10 minutes a day. Noom even has an app for on-the-go, no-excuses engagement. And what I love most about Noom is the live connection with a real human goal specialist and the Noom community for accountability and encouragement. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps lead to big progress over time. And right now, listeners of the show can sign up for a complimentary trial today at Noom.com slash happiness. What have you got to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happiness to start your trial today. Get busy on your well-being goals at Noom.com slash happiness. Now here comes the break. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to today's show. We are talking about the mind and body in balance. My guest today is Tiffany Cruikshank. Let's get back to the conversation. Tiffany, talk a little bit back to the energy level about, you know, why yoga works on a, a neuroimmunological level, neuroplasticity. You know, what are we doing here with, with the practice? You know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. And I think ultimately it boils down to, you know, a practice that helps us feel better in our skin, helps us better relate to the world around us. And, you know, I think it's really interesting when we look at what we're learning now about neurodynamics, how the the nerves actually move through the tissues, neuroimmunology, and how the immune system is involved in regulating the health of the neurologic system as well. And our and, and now we look at all this pain research coming out, which to me, I, I love my specialties more in the orthopedic world. And I love looking at how much we've grown in our understanding of pain. But, you know, the, the reality is that pain is a, is a communication issue. It's a central processing thing. And obviously we can have pain when we fall down, but chronic pain, a lot of times and in many cases becomes a, a central processing issue. So what people don't really realize, I think, is that pain doesn't actually happen in your tissues. It happens in your brain. And so what it is, is my brain also relating these messages of, of, is there an inherent danger? And is that danger significant enough that I need to relay that message back? And so what's interesting about that, I think on a more simplistic scale is just that this understanding of how my body relates to the world is both coming from my tissues themselves. So we use yoga postures to work with the very physical part of the body to help regulate sensation, regulate information streaming back to our brain. Also working, you know, with what's tight, what's weak on a very simplistic level to regulate biomechanics. But then the beautiful part, I think, of the yoga practice is we also look at this this mental mind frame, this mental kind of landscape of being able to regulate this communication, this central processing system, which is so huge for chronic pain, which is such a big issue right now. But then also really regulating our experience in our lives, how we interrelate, how we interact, how we see the world, how we make peace with our bodies. And, you know, a lot of this really stems just from a simple non-judgmental awareness of my body. And I think it's such an important part of the mental health as well as the physical health. And I've, you know, I've been practicing, I've been seeing, I've seen thousands of patients over the past 15 years. And, um, you know, after studying a lot with orthopedics, I think looking at the physical body is such an important thing. But the more I work with people, the more I realize that the mind is such a big 
big part of it. In fact, you know, we see out of Harvard, we have a whole department of placebo, which to me is like the power of the mind. You know, placebo we think of as a negative thing, but it's really the power of our mind to really harness that potential and really regulate how we see the world and how we interact with it. And and ultimately our, you know, our ability to be happy, our quality of life and our ability to navigate the world. And with these really simple tools with yoga for me, you know, I think one of the simplest things is our ability and probably the hardest is our ability to sit with and notice the breath without having to judge it, without having to tell a story on it, without having to interpret it, whether that's in a yoga posture or in meditation as one of the most powerful things I think we do to create these, this body awareness, which ultimately creates these kind of healing maps for our body, for our brain, for our nervous system to help to learn how to better self-regulate, how to better, you know, experience and live in our world. And it's such a simple, but such a powerful tool. And, you know, the energy body is definitely part of that as well. It's interesting. Many of us come, well, we all come to yoga for different reasons. For me, I came to yoga to support my ex-husband who had had heart surgery and his doctor prescribed it. He says, you need to get out and walk and do yoga. That's your physical therapy. That's how you will recover. (laughs) So we went, and this is 20 plus years ago, we went for like a five-day workshop at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. And I fell in love with it. And I had tried yoga at multiple different points in my life and it didn't stick. But there was something about the way that it was taught or where I was at my life in my life or both that was like, this is something. This is a real something. And from there, I, I didn't look back. And it has been one of the guiding stars, whether I'm working through something emotionally or I'm working through something physically, the practice brings me to that healing space. Mm. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really interesting too, that often, you know, you see as a side effect or sometimes in the research is the lifestyle changes that it brings about, you know, in a very simplistic, you know, sense, you know, we're bringing this awareness, this body awareness into it. And as I become more mindful of how I move and how I breathe, I start to take a little bit different approach to maybe how I choose foods, how I choose to plan my day. And it's not even necessarily people think of this, the yoga lifestyle as maybe being something that's, that's planned, but I think it really comes as an effect of, of the mindfulness that we start to instill. And, and also I think one of the biggest components is this non-judgmental awareness, which is again, very difficult to do but you know, can I look and notice my food without even having to judge and say, this is good or bad or right or wrong. Cause I think there's a social aspect to, to eating sometimes as well. But being able to look at it non-judgmentally and be able to sense like, what is this going to do? How is this going to affect me? Is is this how I want to live my life? Is this where I want to choose to put my energy today in, you know, the course of my day, not necessarily just food, but what I choose to, you know, focus on in a day. And I think that becomes really powerful. And it does change the way we view the world, you know, taking into account ahimsa, you know, the principle of nonviolence towards self and others. I think that for me, that was a great learning of what the practice can do. Mm-hmm. You know, in the philosophy of yoga and the yamas and the niyamas, the truthfulness, I think, you know, also being truthful with ourselves in the sense of like, what do I actually need right now? Do I need some food to nourish me? Do I need, you know, maybe 
some wine and dessert to connect with some people in a social occasion. And, you know, and, and do, do I actually need that? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, being truthful with ourselves and what we need and, and what all of these things that we're using in our lives are actually doing to create our experience, I think is really powerful. And, you know, I think as we start to get in touch with these unfiltered feelings and needs in our body, because as a human being, you know, we all have needs, you know, we just have to be able to acknowledge that. And, our ability then as an effect of that to experience empathy and compassion for ourselves as a result of, you know, being in touch with our emotions and our needs in the moment, I think creates such a powerful foundation as an effect for being able to experience empathy and compassion for other people. You know, this idea of uh, experiencing empathy and compassion for another person without having it for myself is, is pretty difficult. And so, you know, I always think of it too as such an interesting thing. If you can imagine just simple body awareness as instilling this compassion for ourselves, this non-judgmental awareness in our bodies as a platform for experiencing compassion and empathy for others, what a different world it would be if we all just had a tiny little piece of this. And I know we, you know, it's it's not a an instant thing, but it's such a powerful thing. And I I think it's really cool to watch the yoga movement explode and to see that mindfulness without judgment. Again, we all we all make mistakes. It's not about being perfect. It's about being mindful and noticing the ripple effect of of what we do and um, how we interact. And that is the medicine, right? The ability mm. to show up for life with empathy and compassion and kindness and a full heart and awareness that has value. And the courage to notice, the courage to notice, I think is such a big thing because it does take courage to look at, you know, whether you have chronic pain or whether you're struggling with, with someone close to you, it takes courage to actually sit with it and notice, you know, what it creates inside of you, what it creates, in, you know, in the world. And yeah, I think really that non-judgmental attitude in, in a yoga practice is is such a big part of it because it's easy to put all of that pressure on ourselves when you start to look at the ripple effect, when you start to look at how these, you know, even just feeling comfortable in your skin affects how you interact with people. It's hard not to put more pressure on yourself to do better and to live better. And then to remember to come back to like, oh, okay, I'm human. I make mistakes. That's okay. And, you know, I want to appreciate that humanness as well. Talk a little bit about new projects over at Yoga Medicine. And then finally, the SIVA Foundation. Well, right now we're working on some programs for doctors, which is really cool for me because it's really about bringing it full circle. We've really focused on training yes. teachers and, and training <laughs> them to this kind of really understand the body on both an Eastern and Western level to be able to integrate East and West and, and work within healthcare settings. And now we're working on programs for healthcare providers to instill first the mindfulness and the self-care, which is such a big thing right now in the, in the healthcare realm with burnout and mental health issues becoming such a huge topic and a huge issue. So trying to instill that within the, the medical schools and within the medical trainings too, so that our healthcare providers can experience this resilience because they need it more than anyone, the, the caretakers themselves. So that's really exciting for me. I'm excited to bring it full circle to the doctors. We're also, we have a new mental health teacher training that's launching, which I think is very timely and very needed because who couldn't benefit from some mental health and wellness. And so we've got some PhDs in mental health coming in to talk on the integration of yoga in the mental health realm. 
And then our Save a Foundation is our other nonprofit, which is um, really about giving back to a, a culture that's given us so much. We have a shelter, a new shelter now we've just built in Delhi for women who have been rescued from trafficking, which is such a huge issue in the whole world. I mean, there's 40 million, I think, was the most recent estimate of, of people who are being trafficked right now. And 18 million of them are, are trafficked in India. Wow. And so it's such a huge issue. And, and that's up like 10 million from just 10 years ago. It's just, it's doubled in the past decade. And it's incredible because it's a very organized industry. So it takes a lot of skill to decode it. And we have a, a couple of nonprofits we work with on the ground in, in India there that rehab 500 girls, about 500 girls a year. And so, you know, we're chipping away at it. It's a huge problem, but for me, it's about giving back and, you know, and, and such a big part of our, our health and wellness as well is creating this perspective that we get from giving back. I, I grew up working in my mom's homeless shelter and, you know, I, I've always felt like giving back was, was such an important thing. And in the healthcare realm as, you know, as a healthcare provider, as well as a yoga teacher, you know, I think it's such an important reminder as healthcare providers and as teachers to put in perspective, we put so much pressure on ourselves, you know, in, in any realm, in any work realm, but going and doing service work, just, you know, it puts everything in perspective, I think. Wow. I applaud you for the work that you are doing. And, you know, when we speak of human trafficking, it's not just the terms that we think of, you know, that somebody is kidnapped off the streets. I mean, human trafficking mm. takes many forms. And I think when we learn of this number, 40 million, it is staggering. Yeah, it is. And, you know, as a woman, I can't even imagine... I can't even wrap my head around what that feels like or what that looks like to have be completely stripped of your power and your choice. And the industry is, 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 it's appalling, right? And so for us, you know, it's really about not only giving these women food and shelter and medical, but for me, it's really important to empower them. We, we teach them yoga, of course, which is a big part of that, but giving them meaningful vocational skills, which, you know, a lot of companies will bring them vocational skills, but our goal is really to bring them skills that get them above the poverty line. Yes. Um, and it's just incredible to see these women inspired and empowered and to see the look on their face. You would never imagine what they've been through. You know, I go, and visit them. And I'm like, gosh, they're happier than most Americans that I know to see them. It's incredible. Well, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for Yoga Medicine. To learn more about Tiffany Crookshank and her work, please visit yogamedicine.com. And you can find her at all the usual places on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest through Yoga Medicine. Tiffany, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the mind and body in balance. What modern medicine and we must learn from ancient science. My next guest is Ed Harold. He's an author, inspirational leader, public speaker, coach, and educator. Ed blends the fields of neuroscience and the wisdom of contemplative traditions into effective strategies to improve well-being in corporate America 
healthcare, athletic performance, and individual health. Ed has served as the director of yoga and sports training for the Kripalu Institute for Extraordinary Living to study breathing in performance states. He's also the author of Life with Breath, IQ plus EQ equal new you. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you, Lisa, and your audience. Ah, well, it's great to have you. I am delighted and intrigued with your study of breath as medicine. And in fact, when I read some of the statistics that you share with your audience and on your website, I'm blown away. Talk about what brought you to study breath. Well, breath was something that came to me kind of through the side window. One day, I about 20 years ago, I was stuck in the office longer than I wanted to be. And I only had a brief window to go to the gym and, and work out. And my exercise time is my time. And I really need to take care of myself, my internal emotions and thoughts so that I can serve the world in the way that I would prefer to. And this little voice went off inside of my head said, you know, why don't you take all of your yoga breathing strategies and concepts and blend it in to your Western workout and just see what happens. And just in a matter of 15 seconds, I immediately knew I tapped into an unbelievable source to help my physiology while at the same time control my psychology. Oh, how beautifully put. And I think that is the beauty of the technology behind yogi breathing. It is. It comes to us from a technique to control heart rates, uh, good posture, learn how to burn fat instead of sugar. But what's going on in the background, consciously, subconsciously, and unconsciously, is executive functioning controls between the brain and the mind are being modified. And old feedback loops that no longer serve us gently are being unplugged from, and new awarenesses are being plugged in on the horizon of our mind and swimming to the shore. So people listening to this may say, yeah, 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 yeah. I know I got to breathe. I know I need to pause, you know, you know, out with the bad and with the good and all that. But talk about, if you will, a little bit about what we know about breathing to improve mood, performance, mental clarity, et cetera. And because there are a whole host of things that good breath work does. Let's just create an umbrella here where we were all born nostril breathers. Every baby that's born on the planet is breathing through its nose. And somewhere during adolescence, the brain begins to see that it can rob energy from the body from hyperventilation or mouth breathing. And that arousal that comes to us it has so many sensations that, that we enjoy. We begin to unplug from our natural organic breathing state of our birth, which is natural nasal diaphragmatic breathing, and we begin to induce mouth breathing protocols. So when you think about, from a medical standpoint, that your breathing rate, how many breaths you're taking per minute, controls your heart rate and what your heart rate is going to be. Your heart rate controls your blood pressure and whether your blood pressure is going to be in balance or out of balance. Your blood pressure has a direct reflection on what your neurochemistry is going to be. Are you going to be in fight or flight, stress, anxiety, or are you going to be in flow or a state of learning and evolving your awareness? from the hippocampus through the back of the brain. And above all, when the brain feels safe and we're relaxed, we're always burning fat. And fat or inflammation reduction is huge as we age because we don't have the energy that we had 20 years ago. And we also know that fat cells are imbued with emotional molecules. So anytime we're looking to create mental awareness expansion or evolving old habits and behaviors, 
these patterns are held in our fat cells. So we can actually be in a self-help program or a weight reduction program all day long if we're just applying our breath as medicine. Mm. Fascinating. Talk a little bit about nasal dominance or breathing through your nose as the dominant form of breathing versus, like you said, most of us, uh, as we uh, grow up, we start breathing through our mouths, not through the natural state, you know, when we're when we're babies. How do we learn to control this and what are the benefits of the switch? Well, the first thing we want to do is begin to notice when we're mouth breathing and ask ourselves, why are we doing this? And having uh, questioning the mind, is there an actual threat here to my well-being? Or am I in danger? And 99% of the time, you'll notice that it's just old thoughts that have reared their head. And just when you begin to catch yourself and you start to reapply the natural nasal diaphragmatic breathing, see when the air goes through the nose, it comes up through the nostrils, and it, the first thing it moves through is the cranial nerves. And these cranial nerves, these 12 nerves in the front of the forehead area, really set the table for the internal environment and how we're going to view the external environment. And keeping the facial muscles, the muscles around the eyes, the muscles around the low jaw, the lips, the tongue completely relaxed, and setting in motion a moment of relaxation with the cranial nerves there's an echo of that which moves through the rest of the brain. And the lower part of the brain, which could classically be your, your hypothalamus or your amygdala, these, these centers here are designed to create defense or offense or, or fight or flight. So when we're mouth breathing, we're breathing rapidly through the nose. There's a stimulation to the lower part of the brain, which activates our animal self, our fight or flight. It, it's, you know, me, there's, there's no we there. The caveman. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when we get the air to move through the nose, there's suction that goes through the top of the brain and it relaxes the brain. The air is drawn down into the lower lobes of the lungs as the abdominal diaphragm muscle vertically presses down towards our low back, which creates wonderful low back posture through L4, L5, lumbar four and five. So when we have good physical posture in the spine, just by the movement of the diaphragm on the inhale, many, many systems that normally are on can relax and be turned off. So we can use the least amount of energy as possible going through the moment. Now, the lower lobes of our lungs are imbued with oxygen-rich parasympathetic nerve endings. And there's where we find these feel-good hormones of serotonin and tryptophan and other hormones that make us feel good and calm. And we know that when we feel good, there's an association with good thoughts. And when we feel bad, there's an echo of maybe not so wholesome thoughts. So getting that inhale to come in through the nose slowly, stabilizing the mental context of what's the opportunity in this moment, creating a straight spine and using the muscles of the spine to hold us erect and not other supportive muscles in the hips and shoulders, getting the air into the lower lobes of the lungs. You're setting in motion a beautiful moment for an opportunity for transformation. Hmm. Well, I, what I do see well, from what you're saying is that you're more open, right? When you're doing this kind of breathing, your body automatically becomes 
more open, more receptive. And, and talk about the benefits of practicing this at your desk, let's say, because you know, oftentimes people think of this kind of breathing is uh, should be limited or restricted to the gym or to the, the yoga practice. And what you're advocating is that we bring this into our daily life, that we're bringing it into our experience as we go through our day, because it's making our brains and our bodies function more optimally. Exactly. The mind-body connection is huge. And when you think about what breath control brings to the brain, brings to the mind, brings to the heart, and opens ourselves up to our full potential. It's incredible. The great thing about the breath is, is it happens on the fly. It, you don't need a specific machine or anything else to make it happen. You do need the mental accruement of learning some concepts and methodologies on how to apply the proper breathing based on what you're going through at any particular time during your daytime hours. And once you have this information, everything in your life will change. Oh, that, that's a big promise. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's been remarkable, the journey with this. And I, I'm discovering more, well, science is discovering more and more about this every day. And I'm just so excited to be part of it and helping people along, you know, along this road of life, which is, is not a paved straight road. Indeed. And I want to ask you about that. We're going to take a break in a minute. And when we come back, I want to ask you about your own personal journey with this work and where it has evolved from maybe where you started out in coaching to where you are now in the way that you work with people. To learn more about the work of Ed Harold, please visit his website, edherald.com. On Twitter, you can find Ed at Ed underscore Harold. And on Facebook, Ed Harold. The book we're talking about today is Life with Breath. IQ plus EQ equals new you. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about the mind and body imbalance. Let's return to the conversation with my guest, Ed Harold. So Ed, I've got a question. And that question is, where did you start your journey? In other words, you didn't land here in breathing guru land. You, you had a journey that brought you here. T tell us a little bit about the story. Well, I grew up in a, a small beach town below Atlantic City, New Jersey, and I was a rambunctious young boy and playing on the beach and getting involved in water sports. And, you know, the sky was the limit. It, it was a it was a great place to grow up. 
And I was involved in athletics, competitive athletics, and that became the foundation of my sense of self. And it was a slippery slope when I began to realize that the foundation of all competition is compassion for challenging yourself on the journey and that there actually isn't any competition at all outside of us. The only competition is taking on that self-saboteur little voice in your head that thinks you can't do it or someone else is better than you or life isn't going to work out for me or somehow I have a sucky happy gene. So my (laughs) life early on was just lived in the outer world and putting myself out there as somewhat of a performer. And some, a light went off about 20 some years ago and I began to realize that life was really just taking place in the inner world and my inner world had become contaminated and I was taking on behaviors and habits that weren't allowing me to perform uh, at the highest levels possible and something need, needed to change. And I got involved in a gentle form of yoga with a lot of breath control and meditation and concentration. And that was perfect for me because my body was so beat up from competitive sports. And once I started to tap into the breath, I, I began to see, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, but there's a certain perfection to all of my imperfections when I can keep my ego off it. And I've always enjoyed the human connection. I need to be around human people. I love to be that spiritual backstop for folks, you know, when we've just taken one for the team or we've made a poor choice. And it just gradually led into the formation of I owned when I was younger I had about five yoga studios going at one time and then I worked my way through corporate America working with CEOs and managers and now I'm doing trainings for healthcare America I have a lot of wonderful private clients but you know but the big thing for me is what is the quality of our interpersonal communication And everything that I try to do around the breath and the various awareness strategies that I try to bring to folks physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it's all about the quality of the communication in that moment. And that's what really gets me motivated and excited. What's going on in this moment? What are we missing? What needs to be added? What needs to fall away? And how can we move forward and harvest the inner happiness that's with us all along the way to the end of the ride? Oh, And when you're working with corporate clients, because bringing this technology into a corporate environment is it's new, right? Not everybody goes to yoga. Not everybody understands the practice of mindfulness. They might perceive it as a little bit woo woo. And what you've done, I see in Life with Breath, is packaged this technology in a way that the CEO, you know, can get it and easily apply it. Yeah. You know, it really it's about health and wellness, the individual well-being, and then the collective well-being of everyone. It's about removing the personal trauma and drama out of conversations where personalities are bunching together and, and letting that go and having certain tools that can keep your eye on the ball when it gets a little wobbly. And it's, it, it's an awareness practice. But when you can begin to see that companies that have this work and do this inner work, the revenue goes through the roof because there isn't any energy being wasted on things that are counterproductive. Everything is positive or neutral. It's productive or neutral. And all the energy that we waste 
in these lower centers of consciousness, it's just like a dog chasing its tail. You know, everybody wants to be like everybody else and it's all drama filled. It's like a soap opera. And the really successful companies today are giving people tools to go inward first, gather their finest self, and then communicate that message out with clarity and precision to meet the goals that we're trying to meet in 2018. Well, and the other thing is that when we are performing well individually, and you touched upon this, what you said earlier, when we are at our optimal place, you know, our, our health is good, our relationships are satisfying, we feel as though the work that we are doing has meaning on the individual level, and then you put a group of people together that are all operating on that similar platform, you do have a limitless resource to do anything. Yeah, it's amazing what one individual can do, you know, cleaning up sort of the debris field behind us in regard to how we used to communicate. And when one person does it, it gives another person permission to do it. And then another person does it. And then the next thing you know, in a matter of a month or two, there's a completely different dialogue taking place in boardrooms. There's a completely different dialogue taking place in sales rooms and sales meetings. And, and there's a there's a level of happiness that something good doesn't even need to happen for folks to be happy. And that's that's what we're shooting for, that spiritual happiness in the science of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, this, this is a positive psychology show, certainly, but that the belief that we could and should be happy 100% of the time is a myth. You know, that the human condition is rife with both positive and negative. Um, how we relate to issues when they arise is ultimately the issue. But when we talk about contentment, that we're able to find a place of contentment and stability in life when it's not always going our way, to me, that actually is a form of happiness. That's a that's a great awareness to share with your audience. And, you know, the less anxiety that we have in our life, the less stress that we're interacting with in an unhealthy way, we don't have that need to attach ourselves to the highs of life in a way like I made it happen on my own. You know, there's always contamination in the highs and there's always good stuff in the lows and trying to grow the center line or the balance beam of your mind. So you're not constantly rushing for the top of the pyramid. You know, the wider you can build the base of your emotional and mental balancing centers, the wider the balance beam so that every step you take during the day, you notice, well, I'm getting a little bit out of balance right now. And then having tools right there to recenter yourself for professional services and personal services for yourself and others as you move through your day and then go home with your family. This is huge. At the top of the pyramid will take care of itself if you take care of your foundation. I agree. Let's talk a little bit about strategies throughout the day that people could use, because I think that different times of the days, a day may call upon different techniques, right? T techniques for grounding and for breathing in the morning when you got to get yourself moving and, and going. And then maybe the late afternoon, there might be an energetic slump. What are some tips that you could give listeners to focus on in their breathing and their awareness? Well, when you, as soon as you open your eyes in the morning and, and you're lying in bed, I, I would suggest closing your eyes and setting in motion the slowest nasal diaphragmatic breath you possibly can do, a complete inhale and a complete exhale, and fill yourself with some mental gratitude that you've awakened and you have an opportunity today, and today might be the day where you discover the buried treasure of your life. And just 
from the first moment that your eyes have gone from unconscious to conscious, just setting in motion the neurochemistry with a slower breath. So at the flashcards of the day, begin early in the morning. So you're in control of your mind. Your mind's not controlling you. You're in control of your feelings. Your feelings aren't controlling you. When you have that inner control, folks outside of you can't control your mood. Now in the morning, we have a lot of sunlight and the sun is rising and there's a lot of energy in the morning. So in the morning, what we want to do is we want to work on our exhale, and we always want our exhale to be longer than our inhale. And in that, the exhale is always cooling. So to get ourselves to the midday point or the high point of the sun during the day using that longer exhale, you're going to use the least amount of energy as possible to get to noon. There'll be a large reservoir of relaxed energy that you can tap in afternoon and then in the afternoon you want to work on your inhale as the sun is going down your inhale could classically be fire or sun and you want to stoke that gastric fire to bring psychological levels up you want to stay focused between two and six because that's where most of the missteps take place so if we can take care of ourselves in the morning with a longer exhale and work on our inhales in the afternoon, we're going to finish the day sharp and we're going to go home feeling really good about our efforts during the day. Beautifully put. And your book, Life with Breath, IQ plus EQ equal new you, it has a 30-day set of practices that can help people establish more of a routine and ritual with the breathing that serves as a guide for self-care, right? Yeah, the 30-day breathing program is something I'm really proud of, and I think it's a, it's applicable to everyone. It, it starts at a, at a basic level because, you know, breathing itself is basic, but it's very deep in, in what it offers us. So don't let the simplicity of it fool you. This will repattern your autonomic and your central nervous system very, very, very quickly. And the saboteur that we all have, that little roommate that just never cleans up after the party. <laughs> The breath is right there to turn back to that voice and say, if you're not here to help, you're going to have to leave. And I have tools in my mental toolbox to remove you. Now, you can stay, but you have to be quiet. To learn more, please visit www.edherald.com on Twitter at Ed underscore Herald and on Facebook, Ed Herald. Once again, the book is Life with Breath, IQ plus EQ equals new you. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for hanging out with me. Lisa, you're awesome. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with your audience today. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day and weekend. You too. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Tiffany Cruikshank and Ed Harold, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>